So now that we see, uh, you know, we, we talked a little bit before the recap about, uh, you know, Star Trek pointing out things in our government and pointing out things, uh, you know, with leadership and, of course, with Enterprise, uh, you know, being in production just after uh, 9-11, there was a big uh, examination of tactics during war and what is what is acceptable, what is not. And here we kind of get a really it's it's been mentioned before in Legacy Trek, but this is our first kind of scraping a little bit deeper into Section 31. And we are seeing that Section 31 is okay with doing things that are bit beyond the prime directive i'll say uh where things are not necessarily black white they are definitely gray uh and we see that they have in in their in their structure a terran the Ter- the former terran emperor who is who will drop people uh without thinking twice about it uh but all in service of the federation what are your thoughts about something like this where, you know, the the ends the ends justify the means, I think is a is a nice way to kind of encapsulate section 31's MO, the ends justifying the means. Uh what what are your thoughts about Giorgio in section 31 and the dealings here uh in this episode? I think section 31 being flushed out the way it became to be in Discovery. Mm-hmm. It's necessary because there are people that do bad things. There are. They exist. So we have to, we need to know how to deal with that. We, a hero can't be a hero without trials and tribulations. Yep. And so we've always seen our Starfleet officers as heroes because they uphold. But how does a hero fight when they need to? Yeah. We didn't always see that as often. And I think Section 31 gives that opportunity to watch our heroes, to watch Burnham, to watch Tilly, to watch Stamets have to face gray. Yeah. Like not everything is black and white. Not yeah. everything is good, bad. Sometimes there it's like Cornwell. She thought she was doing what she had to do. And Michael showed her, we have to stick to, we have to stick to our principles. Yeah. And I think that's what, Michael is also doing for Giorgio. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that she was, she is a Terran, but she was a Terran leader, which implies she's a good leader. Yeah. A good leader <laughs> yeah. can three-dimensionally think, which means yes. they're capable of empathy. Uh-huh. She isn't evil because she's a Terran. Terrans just often make evil choices. Yeah. But we're seeing that she's capable of making not evil choices when she doesn't have to, which implies that like she she kind of falls in the category of like mirror Spock. Where it's like he wanted to be better, but he was unfortunately forced to play a game that he didn't create. Yeah. So what do you, what does a Terran what does a Terran who does have that ability to empathize, how do they operate? Mm. She put herself in a place of power so that she could do what she could. Yeah within the scope of what she was allowed to do. I would be so curious to see more of her origin, how she became emperor. Are there glimmers of that better Giorgio in her? Yeah. Did she have to, did she have to stamp that out or did that strengthen or did she her always position? With it internally. Yeah. 
And then in discovery, we're now getting, we're getting to see her realize just like every character has gotten to realize, wait, I can be me. I don't have to be the facade. I don't have to be the cold blooded emperor. I can actually maybe make a different choice. Yeah. And that's going to be scary and it's going to be hard, but she's willing to do it. And I think that's, I think it's amazing that we're giving a character that's not only a Terran, that was the emperor who did a lot of horrible things. We're seeing redemption is available to anyone. Yeah. Everyone should have the chance to redeem themselves and rehabilitate because every behavior, good or bad, is taught. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we we can't have forgiveness for some and not for all. Yeah, that the idea of uh, an even playing field. There's so many times and so many different aspects of well, we're doing well, we're doing this to to make things right. Uh, I, but you're not doing it for the other side. Yeah, and that's not fair. Like <laughs> you can't. That it's, three dimensional. Yeah, yeah. The whole scope. Which Star Trek has always struggled with in the past, just like we have struggled with. It's like, it's like TOS comes across a little colonialist and a little like, we're better than you Uh because we're Starfleet. But it's like, are you really better? (laughs) And Discovery is allowing us to see like, they are better because they they are not just looking at their side. Mm. Like, yeah, they could have easily just wiped out the Klingons and then problem solved. Yeah. But- then you're not you anymore. Exactly. Now you're you, that, now we're the Terrans. Yep. You won. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, and here's the price. <laughs> yeah. And I think Giorgio is a perfect mirror, not to <laughs> see what I did there. Brutes. To Lorca. Uh, yeah. Like Lorca was also a Terran out of his element. So what did he do? His reaction was to try to make everything around him more Terran, which isn't yeah. gonna work. Yeah. You can't ask the world to adapt to you. You have to adapt to the world. And that's the difference between him and Giorgio. Yeah. Is she's also a Terran out of her element, but she's finding a way to adapt and yeah. to still be useful. Yeah. Section 31, I'm very interested to see what comes of her story in Section 31. Yeah. I'm now we know we're gonna get. Yes. Because yes. I want I want to explore section 31. I want to know that there is someone in there. Who's like, okay, we do have to do what we got to do, but we can still try to do it the best possible way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Picard was on a Black Ops mission. Black Ops missions happen. Yep, they happen. (laughs) When you're fighting someone who's going to take it there, you have to be able to go there or you're not going to survive. Oh, yeah. The harsh reality. Um, So I think Session 31, it makes sense that it exists. It's not pretty. Yeah. But it makes sense. And I think it's interesting that they're willing to explore that and i hope i hope that they give it the same level of nuance and dimension that they're giving us in all of the new trek series yeah i hope so too i hope that you know they do kind of explore the well uh, i've already said it the gray area of just kind of hey look we're about exploration and science and it's like that's wonderful not everybody shares that opinion <laughs> yeah it's, hey, look, you can have your Bunsen burners and your beakers and all that stuff. You should probably have a couple grenades too. <laughs> you, I mean, got, you better be, you better be ready because there's people, think, there's, they'll kill you just because you're there. <laughs> it's like, we saw that in Enterprise. Yeah. They tried it. They tried to go out there with like minimal weapons. And it's like, oh, no, we have to have what we have to have defensive. It's, that's the difference. You have to be able to defend yourself 
and others yeah that are weaker like that's part of being a hero yeah so it's like th- that's the difference between a hero and a villain is that a villain wants a fight yeah a hero doesn't want to but they will and that because they're not just fighting for themselves yeah and i think there's a big part of, uh, of being able to defend yourself uh is, you know i'll speak from my point of view of just being raised in martial arts and then working in law enforcement. So, you know, being exposed to a lot of those different questions of when to engage violence and that sort of thing. There's this idea of self-defense being able to being able to defend yourself. But I think what a lot of people miss and what I think Star Trek reinforces is that's a last resort. Mm-hmm. The first step in defending yourself is with diplomacy, logic, uh, compassion, understanding. If all of these things don't work, hey, I'm about protecting everybody that I've got on this crew. We're going to try to disable your engines so we can get away. You know, like they've always shown us that. Yeah. Like we're not trying to destroy you. We're just trying to protect ourselves. Yeah. Like we want you to live. We just want to live too. Yep. We just want to live too. And if you, and if you can't deal with us being here, that's fine. We'll leave. (laughs) Oh yeah. So uh, let's, let's move on to a different section of this, uh, of this particular episode. We've got a lot of stuff going on with the mycelial network and Tilly's involvement in the mycelial network, not only from uh, the scientific exploration of what the mycelial network is but now becoming completely entangled within the mycelial network and being able to interact with it quite literally face to face um how do you feel about tilly's journey here in this episode and maybe even leading up to this particular interaction uh and then her exploits on the ship in this episode i mean I think Tilly is at her best when she's nowhere near her comfort zone. That's a good point. Yeah. Like every memorable, amazing moment from Tilly is when she is just thrown into the craziest situation. Yeah. Because I think it turns her, it turns her, it turns her questioning off. It's like, I can't question. I can't second. I can't. Yep. I have to, I have to work. Yeah. And that's when she's at her best. And like, and she had to learn that by being thrust. And now we see her being more capable and she's able to just like be more confident and assured. Mm. But it's nice to see how you become that confident is by <laughs> not knowing what you're doing a lot of the times. Yeah. And then figuring it out and being like, all right, I did it. And that, 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 that sums up this episode for her perfectly. She's literally like pulled into another dimension by herself. Also, not even sure if she's not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> she's been seeing this person who is dead. Yeah. So it's like, that's a lot. That's a lot for one person uh-huh. to then also be worrying about real world issues. Yeah. That are around her. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's amazing because that's how life is. Mm. And so I love the realism of that. I love watching a character struggle with that because it's, we all struggle with it. Mm. But then to see her just handle it. Just like it reminded me of um, Beverly Crusher and Remember Me. Yes. Yeah. She just knows there's something wrong, but she's the only one there in the end. And it's like that was kind of Tilly's journey is like, 
I'd prefer to have a team, but right now I'm my team. Yeah. I love that she starts that whole train of thought with, okay, let's presume I'm not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> let's exactly. start there. <laughs> That's what immediately made me think of Beverly. Yeah. Was like, yeah, you have to, it, when you can't trust anything, you have to trust yourself. Yes. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. And then know that your friends are coming. Yeah. <laughs> know that you do have friends. You do have people. You think you're alone. Mm. But no, your friends are gonna, they're coming. Let me ask you, uh, you know, just as, as we we're talking about Tilly's journey, and of course you're done up so lovely as Tilly, you absolutely look wonderful. Um, let me ask you about performing. You know, you, we talked about Tilly kind of being put into those positions where it's okay. Stop thinking and just go do mm-hmm. it's stop thinking and either fight or flight. <laughs> Take one, but stop thinking about it and just do it. Um, Being a performer in the greatest city in the world, um, have you encountered that experience either like early on or, you know, somewhere along in your performing journey where you have to kind of force yourself to stop thinking about it and just jump in? And what was that like? And would you mind sharing that? Yeah, I have, I don't know when I learned it. I don't know if it's just an instinct I've always had. I've always been very creative. I've always done artistic things, whether it's drawing, performing, like whatever. Mm -hmm. I have this innate instinct of the quickest way to kill an idea is Mm -hmm. to overthink it. Oh, yeah. And you have to, when it comes to preparing for a show, I know what I need to do to prepare I know that I need to listen to my numbers. I know that I need to figure out my costume. I know that I need to figure out my hair. I know the pieces, but at some point, you know, you, you get all your ingredients together. At some point you got to start cooking. Yep. <laughs> you got to, yeah. you got to just like stop writing the recipe and start making. Oh yeah. Um, mm. And luckily I've learned that organically along my journey of like, yeah, you, you've done what you can't. You've listened, you've learned your numbers, you've got your costume, you've, you've done what you can besides do it. Right. So, you know, I, you can always tweak, you're always going to find something you could tweak, you could do, but sometimes art just has to be done. You got to yeah. let it breathe. You got to let it live. Cause if you keep picking at it, you're going to destroy it. Mm. Yeah. And I think I've experienced that myself in stand-up comedy. Uh, I mentioned to you earlier, I approach things very much like a writer and the the easiest comparison to make for stand-ups is, do you approach it like a writer? Or do you approach it like an improviser? There's pros and cons to both. And I think one of the things that I had happen to me when I did a little mini tour back in 2018, I think, I wound up at a bar down in Charleston and uh, somebody threw something out from the crowd, a, a comment, not like a beer bottle or anything, but... Uh, <laughs> They, they threw out a comment uh, that I was not prepared for and that I hadn't, I didn't have that thing ready to go to be able to, to work with that. Um, you know, the host ended up coming to me and said, Hey, look, can I give you some advice? I said, yes, please. I said, you're, you're really, you're a good writer. Uh, you're a good performer with a situation like this. They're not here to listen to you. So don't talk at them talk with them mm-hmm. and being able to sort of explore what that meant now i can craft a great joke i can craft a good bit and i can put together 
a cohesive set with a beginning, middle, and end in an overarching story. An improviser doesn't necessarily do that. They are better at crowd work. They are better at going off the cuff. But if you ask them to craft a cohesive story with a beginning, middle, and end and different bits and different jokes within those bits, that's a tall order for them. So being able to marry the two is is a really tricky skill and i i think i've scraped the top of that <laughs> a little bit i think i'm getting better at it but i think that's why i appreciate uh the art form of drag so much just because there is so much meticulous preparation like a writer would but maybe it's in the realm of hair makeup costume the numbers uh, just being able to remember, just being able to remember lyrics, <laughs> not to mention being able to sing them in character and the whole thing. But also there's that element of improvisation where like you're in front of a live, a live audience, there might be some interaction. You got to be able to roll with it. And I've always, and here I didn't have a lot of experience uh, you know, observing drag or anything like that growing up. So this is more, this is more recent for me, but as uh, you know, my, my wife really got into watching drag race and I would, I would catch a few minutes here and there and catching a few minutes turned into catching a few segments turned into catching a few episodes. And I'm like, this is really, really fascinating because not only the, these folks are watchable, entertaining by themselves. Now we're going to add the extra layer, the extra layers of hair, makeup, costuming, and a performance on top of it, multiple performances on top of it. And it's just, it just blows my mind. So, uh, but yeah, being able to kind of roll with those punches in, you know, but at the same time being prepared, Tilly is very, very prepared, but maybe she's not great at the improvisation and making those quick decisions but we're seeing her being put into those situations like you said where she's got to make a choice she has to um and i think we're starting to see her shine a little bit and as we go further along in discovery once uh she gets a couple of cadets under her wing we see her have being forced to take the role of mentor which is even which is even more fun because now we've gone on this journey with Tilly from Ensign to mentor. And it's like, oh, I, I'm I'm super excited for it. I'm super excited for it. Uh, do you have anything else? Uh, oh, you know what? I'm leaving out a big thing. Uh, the reemergence of Wilson Cruz. Oh yeah, that's what I, wanted, I definitely want to talk about that. Please take, take the floor, go for it. No, I was just going to say, uh, what I love is I love when, I love how, I love when I can think of my words. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time um i love when trek references itself yes like there are trek has been around long enough that there are tropes that are specific to star trek yep um rather it's like how are they gonna find a way to destroy the ship and then bring it back yep like we, we've seen it in every star trek series at some point yep and the other one that i've always loved is like oh they killed him off how are they going to bring them back? Yeah. Like, and like a lot of people didn't think Wilson Cruz was coming back. They thought that he, they had killed him off. Yeah. And I was like, if they did, this might be the end of Star Trek and me because I will not watch a show that fridges one of the first 
queer characters. I won't. I'm like, that will be my hard limit. Yeah. But I trusted Star Trek enough to be like, I don't think that's what they're doing. I was like, I think they're going to Harry Kinnon. They're yeah. going to bring him back. Yep. And because it wasn't episodic and it didn't happen that episode, people were like, oh no. And I'm like, no, this is long form storytelling. Yep. So when I saw him, I was not surprised to see him. I was just like, this is how they're going to do it. <laughs> and it, it made me, it made the little Star Trek nerd in me so happy. Cause I'm like, yes, you, yes, you, you get it. You get it. <laughs> you know that you are Star Trek and you cannot kill off a character we love. You yes. have to bring yeah, and it's absolutely. Like they brought him back in Star Trek style with some really crazy science. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, something you said that a lot of people might not catch on, uh, catch on to the term fridge. Um, I I know that I know that from comic books. Do you know yeah, the? Re- okay, okay. <laughs> is it Punisher. I'm sorry. Which is it? It's not Punisher, is it? It's a green a Green Lantern. Is it Green Lantern? Okay. Yeah, I know. I know that the term comes from a girlfriend. Being killed and put yeah into- yeah the the term for for those who are not familiar the term uh fridging or uh refrigerating or dispatching dispatching a, a second tier character uh comes from a Green Lantern comic book where uh, I believe it was Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern uh came home to his girlfriend and found her dead in the refrigerator and a lot of people got very upset about it because um, here we had one of the only female characters in this story who her purpose was to be found dead in the refrigerator. So to introduce a character for the sole purpose of having them die is the term is where the term fridging comes into play. But sorry, I just wanted to elaborate because I read how it, how it relates to non- heteronormative relationships yes and so the best way to for me what really made it click because i'm like well sometimes characters have to die how do you how do you know if it's a fridge and if it's not and the way that um the answer i found that i think made the most sense to me Mm -hmm. was that if you are killing a character only to enrich another character's story that is a fridge and that's what I meant by like, it did, it, it easily looked like they were going to fridge Wilson Cruz so that Stamets could have that journey of grief. And it's like, so you just killed off this amazing character just, just to service the other character story. Yeah. It's so like, no. <laughs> well, you know, and it's, I think they were able to get away with doing a little bit of both because yeah. we got, we got to see we got to see a lot of what, hell. We got to see Stamets encounter his lover's murderer. Like, whoa! I mean, that was that was huge. And being and being able to see him in that situation is certainly unique. In the I don't think we've seen much like that in Star Trek. Um, yeah, yeah, there yeah. Were never not, not, there were never ramifications. Yeah, yeah, they, exactly. They Brady bunched it in the end. Everything was fine in the end. Yes. Like, if you die, if you die on the job, it, there's gonna be if you die and come back to life. Yeah. You're gonna you're gonna struggle with that. Everyone around you who thought you were de- th- 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 that's a lot. Yeah. And I feel like I don't know why Harry Kim keeps coming. I think it's because I recently rewatched that episode, um, Deadlock, where yes. Harry is killed sucked out into space 
And then we find out there's another Harry on another Voyager and that Harry ends up coming back. And so, and they, Janeway and him talk about it, but it's like glibly. Yeah. Like weird is part of the job. It's like he died. (laughs) died. And now he, he's not him. He's him from another, uh, he's going to need some therapy about this. But the most he ever got in legacy Star Trek was like, I'm going to give you the next two days off to think about this. <laughs> and I expect to see you bright-eyed and bushy-tailed alpha shift Monday morning. Okay. <laughs> yeah, love you're you. absolutely right. Love you, kid. Yeah. And then it showed us like, no, like this is what would really happen. And that's the gift of Discovery being a long form story. Bingo. Is that yeah. we do get to see, we got to have our cake and eat it too. Yes. We yes. got to see Stamets go through that. And that's what to me makes it like that. Okay. Just killing him off so Stamets could go through that is lazy writing. Killing him off so Samus can go through that and then finding a way to bring him back so that we can then go through it with him too. It's like, oh, that's good writing. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, every character should have something to deal with. Yes, absolutely. You're you're hitting the nail right on the head. It's, you know, uh, and I, I love the fact that they were, like you just said it, like they were able to ha- have their cake and eat it too. It was just kind yeah. of, we were able, to, we were able to see him have that, we were able to see Stamets have that great interaction with Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then now we've got this thing where, hey, he's back from the dead, but he is not okay. <laughs> and it's and again in the next episode, he's still not okay. He's not okay for a while. <laughs> I feel like the only other time we've ever seen this kind of journey mm. was Buffy the Vampire Slayer when they Good brought call. her back to life and like she had to deal with that. And it's like that's amazing storytelling because it's like everyone has to deal with crate like we all have traumatic things that happen in our lives we all have you know we all experience loss we all experience grief and it's like why should these characters not yeah and they can't experience it in normal ways because they're not normal they (laughs) they're in star trek (laughs) like it's gonna be crazy um we have we have salamander babies here um, we, are like, we don't do anything normal yeah. so i think it was such a beautiful way to tell the the story through a perfectly calibrated star trek lens mm-hmm. yeah. of like you, like this is going to be teaching healing and growing for the audience and also just be really entertaining yes gosh you're yeah yeah you're absolutely right uh you know in looking at this episode and uh, we've got our characters continuing to go through these uh, really fantastic things. And when you look at a story like this, that has these characters go through so much growth and all these things happening to these characters that are, that we are really heavily invested in. You always have to ask the question as we do every week here on the show, who do we blame? Uh, This episode was written by Kirsten Beyer, the elusive and mysterious Kirsten Beyer. I can't seem to find any info on her. <laughs> she's not anywhere on the internet. I can't find her. <laughs> I just know she's written really good Star Trek. She's written a lot of great. I've read a few of her novels. Yeah. I loved her work with Picard. Like, it's, yeah. It's, listen. Yeah, like, she is very, she's, yeah. Miss Beyer, if you're, if you by chance hear this, please reach out please we'd love to just chat with you you don't have to you don't have to do a big thing we'll we'll do a really short episode but i just want to talk for a few minutes with you <laughs> 
I don't want to demand, but I would love to be a fly on the wall in that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, oh, I'm a, I'm a carve wax on it. Yeah. There's no, there's no way I'm not, I'm going to get to talk to her and not record it. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I got I, you. I, I'm not going to be like, you have to have me on that episode, but I'm like, <laughs> if you want someone, I'm fine with that. I would be fine with that. Absolutely. Uh, her last episode that she wrote was uh, Discovery Season 1, Episode 8, Sevis Pacum Parabellum, which we discussed with comedian Patrick Cunningham back on Episode 94. This episode was directed by David Barrett, whose last episode directing was Season 1, Episode 7, Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, which was the bottle episode with... Uh, with uh harry mudd that was that's a really fun episode we uh we oh yeah we discussed that with uh star trek enterprise actor connor trenier back on episode 93 and guest stars we've got a bunch of familiar faces coming back of course we've already mentioned wilson cruz coming back as culber michelle yo as Giorgio, jane brooke as cornwell alan van sprang as leland uh, Rachel and Cheryl is non and Bahia Watson as may. So a couple of fun, uh, interesting things to note about this episode. And I'm going to try to incorporate these more, uh, as we continue to go through, uh, the franchise, but I saw that this episode was the last episode to be executive produced by Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts. Uh, and it's noted here that Harberts was the first openly gay showrunner in the Star Trek franchise. Now, before we began to roll, uh, Flip, you and I talked about um, people's perception of uh, the queer community in Star Trek and how they're funnily acting like it's a new thing. Uh, but can you talk about uh, just, you know, bullet point a couple of things that we were talking about earlier about the queer community as it relates to Star Trek and why people are so dumb and thinking that this is a new thing. <laughs> well, I don't think anyone's dumb. I think we all see things from our point of view. So we mm. see our lens. Yes. And queerness is very new to Star Trek as far as queer characters, like actually queer characters. Okay. That's yeah, yeah, new. yeah. But you and I talked before we started that like there is queer coding all over Star Trek, but that's the thing with queer coding. It's supposed to go over most people's heads. Uh. It's only supposed to hit the intended audience. That's how queer coding was invented back in mm. when films were invented. How can we tell stories that will speak like queer people have existed for as long as recorded history? Yeah. <laughs> They also usually tend to be forefront in most creative fields. So why wouldn't they be in the film industry in the 1940s and 30s when film was star or 20s too? Yeah. So they were trying to tell their stories, but they knew that they had to tell them in a way that the straight people wouldn't understand. Uh, and so that's how queer coding came to be. Mm -hmm. And it was it's been used in there there's so much material to read about queer coding. It's fascinating. Yeah. I learned so much about like finding movies and TV series and books that I could read where no one was queer in them, but I could still feel like part of the story was for me. Okay. And now like, I don't have to search for it. It's right in front of me. I now see the people that are like me, but they've always been there. You know, we have um, Dax has always spoken to the queer community. Of course. Um, 
her her acceptance of like I was this now I'm this I was male now I'm female that of course that's going to speak to the queer audience especially transgendered people and individuals who we we didn't have anyone else to look for to tell those stories right on network television yeah and seven of nine is another example I you and I talked about it she was always othered she was always on the outside she never quite fit in any character like that is going to speak to a queer audience because that's a feeling we experience our whole lives and now it's more powerful because now she is queer yeah like she went from queer coded to queer and that's the journey star trek has taken it's like now it's telling the stories instead of hinting at the stories um and i think that's so powerful i think that's why stamets and colber are so important as the first like you said i never realized they were the first like established married couple and you're right we've yeah the only other time we've met that is like in a widow widower situation yeah like crusher was married but he had passed away cisco was married but she's dead and then we've had amazing romances where we see the courtship right but it it almost was disney in the way of like like the culmination is the end of the love story and now we're yeah. seeing like no there there is life after happily ever after there after marriage there's a it can it keeps going oh yeah um, and it's so cool that the first time we see that is between two queer characters yeah yeah um, and and in such a uh, sorry to cut you off in in no. such in such a relatable moment of them standing there brushing their teeth it, like, it was normalizing yeah it's, yeah it, it was. I'm not gonna cry twice it was a, it was an example of we're just like you like like for those people that don't get it still that are like what do two guys do they brush their teeth and go to bed when yeah. it's bedtime, yeah. or they have dinner or they fight or they converse or they support or they do everything you do yeah, yeah. it's you know it's those those moments uh you know again i i I mentioned earlier uh my wife and i are staring down the barrel of our 15 year wedding anniversary and it's just it it, we 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 find ourselves constantly just kind of looking at each other going doesn't it doesn't feel like 15 years and it's you know it's those things that make your relationship special of like you know those small things of just you know uh i play with her hair when we lay on the couch to watch cartoons or you know she'll she'll scooch a little closer to me in bed and you know uh and she'll you know nuzzle my she'll uh nuzzle her head against my bicep to kind of like soften it up for her own head or you know you know little turns of phrase and things like that and to see you know people get so bent out of shape of that it's two guys and it's no that you're totally missing it it's two people in love and we hadn't seen that in star trek and it's so wonderful to just see two people in love that have been in love for a long time that yeah yeah we're not seeing the courtship but now we get glimpses of their courtship through little comments and little side stories like a couple that's been together for a long time like it's a wonderful thing when they tell that story of like how they met like (laughs) it's one of those moments for me because it's like i i have often met a few people where it's like i met them and it's like it wasn't like immediate 
like, oh, I love this person. It was like, oh, wow. Okay. Wow. They're very different from me. Uh-huh. So I have to like navigate that, learn them. And then I build a friendship with them or a relationship with them. And then there's that moment of like, wow, I can't imagine my life without you. And if I hadn't, if I had gone with my knee jerk reaction of you, yeah. I yeah. would have missed out on this. Yeah. And I loved that, like when they first met, it wasn't like there were sparks, but they weren't necessarily positive sparks. Yeah. But I loved it, and that happens. I that happens in real life, and I love that it was it was a reinforcement of that. Of like the one of the biggest messages of Star Trek is like first impressions can be deceiving. Mm, very. Yeah. You have to always dig deeper, and that's the only way that we're going to get to know each other as humans. And still maintain our individuality and our differences. And, you know, I don't believe in homogenization. I don't think that we should all try to be the same. I think we should celebrate each other's differences. And the only way to do that is to be open to each other's differences. Yeah. And I love that that was part of their love story is like, you know, we've always seen the guy and the girl meet. They like each other. They might fight it, but they like each other. Of course. And they end up together. And it's just nice to hear a story where it's like, I didn't necessarily like you, but I was intrigued by you. <laughs> and I'm like, that is so real. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, you know, I don't, we don't make a big thing of this, but it's kind of, it's kind of a funny story that I guess we're at our, a point in our relationship where we've begun to, you know, put it out there here a little bit more. My wife stood me up on our first date. She, she didn't, she didn't show up. <laughs> Can I ask why? Like, did she ever tell you why? Because of the chosen activity. What did you, what were you making her do? Professional wrestling show. Okay. So here's, here's the thing. Like, again, I haven't. I could see her point of view. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was, uh, we, uh, we had, we had hung out once, maybe twice. And I said, Hey, you know, there's this, uh, the typical dates seem kind of boring. And I was just like, you know what? Let's do something really unique. Let's do something really, really unique. And there was a WWE house show coming to town. Now the house show is different than a live taping. A live taping, you get the jumbotron, you get the fireworks, and the whole the whole thing. A house show is the ring and chairs. That's it. You get to see your favorite WWE superstar, but that's it. There's no jumbotron. There's no announcers. There's it's nothing. It's basically a practice. You're you're watching the you're watching a rehearsal. It's the out of town trials. Exactly. So that's what we were doing, and uh, I got decent seats and the whole thing, and she never showed. And <laughs> now fast forward a couple of years. Yeah, I'm interested. Like what happened after that? That yeah. Uh, and I, she, well, you know, I, Hey, what, what happened? She's just like, Oh, I, I forget. I forget what the excuse that she made, but it, she made it known. She was not super comfortable. She didn't know what to do or what to expect or any of that stuff. I was like, okay, no problem. And I was just like, yeah, that was probably, that was probably a too, too big of a leap right off the bat. But she she did end up start watching it with me on television a couple times. And we had some friends that were also into it. So we would all get together, hang out, get some pizzas, watch wrestling and have a good time. And then fast forward a, uh, a couple of years, they were doing a TV taping in town with the Jumbotron, the fireworks and the whole pageantry. And she's there with the T-shirt and the big sign and she's cheering on, like just screaming at the top of her lungs and, you know, cheering on. 
at the time it was uh this was when Dave Batista was still active in WWE. He was fighting Shawn Michaels, the heartbreak kid, and they were having a little feud together. And she was she's really she was really into Shawn Michaels at that time. <laughs> but yeah, we had we had a great time. But yeah, it's it's one of those stories now that it's just kind of like it's part of the DNA of our relationship. It's part of that tapestry that creates us. I love that because it's like sometimes there are missteps yeah and there are like miss 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 connects like yeah. disconnects yeah and it's like i love that you guys overcame that because it's like you know i mean good for her for knowing knowing herself and what she was comfortable with mm-hmm. um and it's fair that you know if you don't know someone you don't you don't know if you are safe communicating that some men can't handle this tiny bit of rejection and it's like her saying, I don't want to go to wrestling. What if that offended you? What if it turned into, so it's like, I totally see her point of view and I'm yeah. glad. Well, good for you too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> time to learn each other. Yeah. And I mean, Starstruck taught us. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we still, we're, we still learn, you know, again, times change, things change, people change, you grow, you learn like, yeah, we're about to celebrate 15 years. The woman that I am married to today is not the woman I married back in 2008. She has grown. She has changed. Both of us have. And uh, yeah, it's it's not something. I've met a couple people who who look at uh, our relationship and think, oh, you guys make it look easy. And we are quick to laugh and dispel. Like, <laughs> relationships are not easy. Like, hell, as soon as you combine bank accounts, like... <laughs> You you're in you're in uh some tricky waters here, but you know it's it's not something that uh, gosh you know we'll we'll just get married and that'll fix everything or we'll just have a kid and that'll fix everything like wh- where did that thought come from because that is not the case. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 a wonderful thing and, and again getting to see it on Star Trek was is is so wonderful as well. And I'm, I absolutely adore those characters. Um, moving on. We've got one more, a little bit before we start wrapping things up uh, the episode title saints of imperfection. A lot of people might not realize this, but this episode's title is from a quote from Guillermo del Toro, uh, who I, I have not held back in expressing my love for that man and his work. <laughs> especially in sci-fi fantasy over the years. Um, but it was, it comes from his very emotional acceptance speech for his first Golden Globe win for best director of the movie Shape of Water, which stars Doug Jones. <laughs> Since childhood, I've been faithful to monsters. I have been saved and absolved by them because monsters, I believe are patron saints of our blissful imperfection. And they allow and embody the possibility of failing and live. For 25 years, I have handcrafted very strange little tales made of motion, color, light, and shadow. And in many of these instances, in three precise instances, these strange stories, these fables have saved my life. Once with Devil's Backbone, once with Pan's Labyrinth, and now with Shape of Water. Because as directors, these things are not just entries in a filmography. We have made a, a deal with a particularly inefficient devil 
that trades three years of our lives for one entry on IMDb. <laughs> and these things are biography, and they are life. I wanted to get your thoughts about that particular sentiment of monsters or the outsiders or the others are the patron saints of imperfection. Uh, you know, looking at the way things are in the world today, where people are demonized for the, the clothes they wear, the life they live, or just trying to, while trying to do good in the world, but because of what, of how they appear, they're demonized. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this particular quote. Monsters are the patron saints of imperfection. What do you think of this? I'm going to be honest. I knew nothing about that being a quote from like someone contemporary. Mm. It sounds like... <laughs> Like, I'm really showing my ignorance here, but I'm fine. I don't need to know everything. I love that I learned that today. I was like, oh, is that like some Shakespeare title? Like, It sounds very Shakespearean. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, so, I mean, I love that. It's like, we always think of like classical figures when we think of like these amazing philosophical. And it's like, there, there are amazing philosophers alive and well right here and right now that we should be listening to. Yep. Um, because that's a beautiful like sentiment and I love that quote. Yeah. Because it it's true like what you said like anyone anyone can be made to look like the bad guy. Yeah. You know, just change the lighting just a little bit. Yep. You know, focus on this instead of that. Look at the look at the flaws, look at the imperfections, look at the mistake they made 15 years ago. Yeah. Like like that's what we do. We we are the age of information where it's like everything is there for you and it's like it can come back to haunt you in a way that has never been possible mm. in society yeah. pre the internet. And now it's like, if you said it once, you are defined by that statement. Yeah. No matter how many years pass, no matter how much growth, it will still be brought up. It will still, you will still have to defend it. You will have to apologize and explain. And it's like, I think that is so, it denies the ability of growth and change in people. Mm. When you're made to answer for some for a mistake that you made in your past, um, I think I mean we should all be held accountable and have to answer to our mistakes. But once we've done that, we should be given grace and forgiveness to move past it. Yeah. And it's something we're still learning. I think um, I don't know why the only example that's coming to mind is like Kim Kardashian. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She had a sex tape. Um, she didn't kill anyone. She was irresponsible and young. She wasn't doing anything wrong. She was experiencing a moment of intimacy with someone that she loved. And to this day, she's now 40. I think she's now 40 or 41. Like it's been decades. Yeah. It still gets brought up to her. She still has to defend it. She still has to explain it. And it's like, when, when will she be past that? When will we allow her? Like the things that she's done since she's given birth to children, she has formed a family. She has built an empire. She has like become a very successful businesswoman. Like there are so many other things that you could talk to her about. I would be much more interested in hearing about her journey as an entrepreneur than to hear her defend a mistake she made as a kid. Yeah. But it's like, it is, it's something that we still do to so many people. Yeah. And yeah, I think that quote is perfectly encapsulates that idea of it, none of us are perfect. We are yeah. all, we are all imperfect. And I love that, that I love that message being shown through Culber's, you know, to the, to the 
species inside the mycelial network, he's a monster. Yeah. And to him, they're the monsters. Yeah. Because they attack him. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, all they needed to do was try to understand each other and communicate instead of react. We we all go around reacting. And it's like, sometimes you just got to turn your reaction off so that you can actually see what's happening. Yeah. Instead of like, oh, that happened. What's my feeling about it? What's my take on it? What's my opinion? Is your opinion even relevant? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's yeah. You know, hearing here in the last few months, um, everything going on with the statistics on gun violence in this country, um, the attacks on, uh, uh, folks in the queer community um, and and things like that uh, from people who uh, should be making efforts to make the world a better place. And uh, it, it's just mind boggling to me who gets chosen to be a monster and why. And I don't know, as, as a former law enforcement officer, I, I always felt like I gave people a fair shake. Um, I never lied never lied to anybody. I always tried to help as much as I can. Uh, my last option was to arrest. Um, but it was always with the intention of making sure everybody got home safe because that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to go home safe. (laughs) And I, I can't, I can't wrap my brain around somebody being, being okay with the mass murder of generations yet demonizing people who who want to read to kids i i i i can't i've i've tried i've really tried to see from their perspective or or something and it just does not compute like it it's it's not connecting i don't get it i don't know i i'm probably just i'm probably not helping matters by not being able to adequately voice my thoughts but um yeah what you're doing is you're actually giving me a chance to voice mine as the as as one of the people under attack right now just for simply wanting to entertain um it stems from us defining and i'm using us as the collective us Mm -hmm. um every person on this planet i don't think you know so it's a big generalization um but i think it comes from us as a species Mm. we're still we're still defining each other and ourselves by our differences instead of by our commonalities and when you do that that makes us us and you them and as long as we're us and them then it's an us versus them and until enough of us and we are out here the people that do seek the commonalities in each other the things that we can understand so that we can then learn and accept the things that we don't understand yeah and until the majority of us are doing that, then the, this is the struggle that we have. Mm. And um, it's at the heart of the message of Star Trek. I think it's why so many of us like-minded people like Star Trek, because we recognize that message. Yeah. And so you are helping. You're helping by spreading that message and by giving voice to other people who, like, this is my first time on a podcast. I've never gotten to talk like this. I've never gotten, I'm learning about myself by being challenged to voice my opinions (laughs) um you know and we're so honored (laughs) we're so honored to have you here to do this thank you like it's very enriched like i'm i'm 
growing just from this conversation. I've never spoken on what's happening um, to my community. And I don't just mean queer people. I mean the drag community. Um, I've never spoken on it. And now I know how I feel about it. (laughs) Like I knew I wasn't happy, but it's like, oh, that's the answer to your question. This is why it's happening. Mm. Because we are, A, it's a blatant misdirection. Mm. Like, don't look over here, look over there. Um, And it's coming from, it's a witch hunt. They're different. So they're bad. Um, And luckily it's not standing because we have a, we have an outlet. We have a voice. We, you know, we have to fight for it and earn it just like every level of minority has had to do in the past. You know, women are still fighting. Um, Black Americans are still fighting. And so it's like, we're, we're having to fight. Like the fight won't be over until it's over for everyone. Yeah. And Ugh. so it's hard to live through it, but it's nice to see a vision where we do live through it. Yeah. Yeah. That's that we can, we can get there. I, I think we, we can. Will. I think we can. If, if we, if we want it bad enough, um, I, you know, I, I've, I, I recall earlier in my coverage of the franchise um, saying that, if we ever hope to reach the stars, we have to reach sideways first because uh, nobody gets there alone. Um, the the thought that the thought that keeps me up is knowing knowing, and they actually talk about it in Strange New Worlds uh, when uh, Pike goes to visit that planet that's uh, just at each other back and forth, and he starts with the news footage, and it's it is recent news footage. <laughs> a gut punch you weren't kidding you need that you need that everyone needs a wake-up call and some of us are already awake to it but it's also easy to be complacent and to get lost in the minutiae of our everyday individual lives so it's important to have reminders that like yeah there's still a good fight to be fought yeah i I, come a long ways but we are nowhere near where we need to be or where we're going to be yeah I, um, uh, that, that thought that keeps me up is just that the idea of it's the, the old sentiment of, oh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Oh, geez. Really? <laughs> does it, does it have to, or, or are we there already? Like, can it just go ahead and start getting better, please? <laughs> uh, it's the kind of thing where, yeah, that's why it's that it's so hard to live through because we, we don't know how it in, we, I would like to think I know how it ends. I just don't know how we get there. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to see it in our lifetime. Oh, I mean, yeah. Love to. Yeah. Well, so uh, Flip, first of all, thank you so much for joining us uh, for this phenomenal episode. This has been so great talking with you. Uh, and you've just, uh, I was excited to begin with. And now you've, you've blown my mind with this, with our discussion today. Um but uh, as we do every every week, we ask the question, is this essential viewing? If somebody is sitting down and working their way through Star Trek for the very first time and they come to this episode, is this one that they can skip or is this a must-see episode for one reason or another? I, I mean, it brings back from the dead a main character. So that to me says immediately essential viewing. Yeah. Um, because that's such a major plot point. That's such a major storyline and I also think you know the mycelial network that's been 
part of the DNA of Discovery since episode one. Or yeah. maybe not episode one because we didn't get to Discovery until a little bit in. But yeah. yep, <laughs> yep, you're right. But the mycelial network that that becomes a character in a way. Mm. So yeah, you're absolutely episode, right. Yeah, I think this episode is essential viewing for both of those storylines, the mycelial network and Colbert, not to mention Colbert and Stamets. Um, Tilly aside, like I think it's definitely essential viewing for a Tilly fan. But yeah, I do I do think this one, this one shouldn't be skipped. Yeah. And you know what? I, I'm absolutely completely agree with you. I'm even gonna add uh that extra, here's another extra layer for that, um, as a big section 31 fan. I think this is essential to see this very particular stage in the overall, I'll say subplot that is section 31 at this point, knowing that uh, we've got Giorgio uh, and where she's come yeah. from. It's like, another yeah. character brought that. it's like, this is important. If you miss this one, you're going to watch the next one and be like, wait, what happened? Exactly. <laughs> he was exactly. dead. Where did she come from? So Yeah. I, well, I think it's amazing the writing is able to bring you know usually there's just story a and story b if you're lucky yeah. sometimes it's just story a and story b is really weak yeah. this has so many like important storylines happening and they all happen organically they each get enough focus that like no character is wasted yes um which i mean that's the hardest thing in an ensemble show is making sure that your entire ensemble has a time to shine. Yes. And this episode is a good example of like, not just one person shined, not just two people, but like- A bunch, yeah. Performances. Yeah. From, I would say four, like I would say Giorgio, Tilly, mm -hmm. Stamets mm -hmm. and Colbert. Like mm -hmm. the, the, their storylines are so progressed by this. Oh yeah. Equally in one episode. That's insane. Kristen yeah. Bayer, I choose to believe that you definitely had a hand in that part. Yeah. They're <laughs> writing. She knows how to write multiple characters. Like she knows how to work an ensemble. Yeah. And that's important because, and it's interesting to think like your lead actor, your number one on your call sheet, Sneakwa Martin Green, is a kind of a secondary character in this in this story. Like it's it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. And yes, uh Kirsten Bear, if you're again please please reach out we'd love to talk with you for just a few minutes about your about your career uh yeah so well uh again flip thank you thank you thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today do you have any parting thoughts before we start to wrap it up about the episode about the series the franchise your first podcast experience any any parting thoughts before we go yeah um i mean this was an amazing experience i did not expect I thought we were just going to talk about a Star Trek episode and I was really happy about that. But like, we have like, this is a Ted talk yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm here for it because that's the thing. Star Trek does. It does give us the opportunity to have larger conversations. That's the whole point yeah. is that there is something for everyone to take away from it. And then when different people start talking about what they took away from it, you, you just, be, you open more and more and more and more. So I love that. I love that we experience that just on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Like we come from very similar yet different backgrounds at the same time. So it's very fascinating to see the overlaps and then the disparities. I love that. Um, yeah, good episode. I'm so excited for the for the final season of Discovery. I cannot wait to reunite with these characters. I'm cannot wait to go back from the from the Vulcan hello and just watch it all again. Yeah. Like 
Ugh, love that. Um, well, folks, he began working for IDW in mid-2000s, but has since become known as the Alex Ross of the Star Trek universe. Next week, we will be joined by legendary comics creator J.K. Woodward to discuss Short Treks Season 2, Episode 2, The Trouble with Edward, which is available exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Flip, where can people bother you directly on the internet? I have recently become more active on Twitter, which I'm excited about. I, a card season three, I got a little bit of notoriety because of my seven of nine. Um, people oh, yes. started sharing it. It started going all over. And I, so I joined the conversation. So I've made a lot of good friends on Twitter, always looking for more. And Instagram, you can find me on both of those as Flipkiki, F-L-I-P-P-E-K-I-K-E-E. And I am at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all of the socials from all of us at the Computer Resume Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in 10 forward. Like, rate, review, and share on all your favorite platforms. Feel free to send us your subspace transmissions to computerresumepodcasts at gmail.com or at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. The Computer Resume Podcast was created and produced by Mr. Todd A. Davis. Our logo was designed by Will Martin and Justin Bishop. The opening theme was produced by Justin Bishop, and our outro music was provided with permission by Dronode. Additional music was provided by Mr. Todd A. Davis and Gary Horn, and the voice of Computer Resume Podcast and executive producer, me, Kat Davis. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you next time. Going through a Star Trek. We're doing Star Trek stuff in space. We probably got some phasers and shuttle pods, and we're going to find a brand new race. How's that for a slice of fried gold?